Welcome to show 29 of the C-Suite podcast, which I'm recording at the London offices of the newly rebranded uh, Public Relations and Communications Association, as I'm here for the launch party of a new book uh, called Future Proof Edition 2. Uh, now, this latest book aims to continue the discussion around the key opportunities facing public relations that its first edition started in October 2015, which has already achieved over 2,500 sales and downloads. Uh, Future Proof Edition 2 contains 39 new essays from authors around the world, all of whom are key players in the PR industry, and I'm delighted to say that a few of them will be chatting to me uh, on uh, today's show, starting with the brains behind the operation, Sarah Hall. Um, Hi. Now, you're clearly a sucker for punishment doing this all <laughs> again less than a year after the first edition. No, you're absolutely right, and even I'm wondering about uh, what I was thinking. But do you know what? The demand, I was surprised at the appetite for Future Proof when I first went out with the concept. Um, it was hugely successful. We had more than 2,500 downloads and sales. Uh, which I still can't believe. Uh, and then actually people started to come to me quite regularly and say, what are you doing for Future Proof 2? Um, before we called it Future Proof Edition 2. And uh, I'd, I had a few ideas because we did some work with the PRCA um, at the beginning of the year about agency models. And when we did a round table, there were quite a few things that came out of that. And of course, there were quite a few things that I knew that I had missed from the first edition. And I wanted to go back to that. But admittedly, I didn't expect to throw the spec out on the 4th of July and to be here, sat here less than two months later or with a brand new tomb. It's fair, I mean, you've turned it around really quickly, actually. So what I was keen to do is if you can just talk us through the whole process of because it's been crowdsourced, obviously, yeah. and then the whole editing and publishing of a book like this. Yeah, so I've been quite lucky in terms of I've been I was mentored for the, through the first process, and I've actually had some support this time. So the idea very much came from um, I've always worked in agency, and I learned an awful lot on the job and going from agency to agency. And I did think there's so so many different things you could write about that you don't you can't find in one guide anywhere. But I knew I couldn't do justice to the to the book on my own. And then um, Stephen Waddington did the PR stack project, which is crowdsourced, and I really liked the concept. So I said to him, do you think I could do this with this? And he said, go for it, and obviously, huge success. So this time around, it's been a little bit easier because you know the process. It's like having a kid, you know, by the time you get to number two, you know how to do the nappies and what to expect. But um, it's, it's basically a very straightforward process if you have very clear guidelines and you're quite rigid in, in adhering to them. Um, so I got together a spec, looked at all the topics I wanted, and the scary thing this time I would say is that last time I kind of had penciled in names of experts I knew I would like to land and thankfully who came on board this time it was very much crowdsourced in terms of I just went out there yeah. and I had to pray that we'd, we'd get some great people and you know what we absolutely did I know we've got a few of your uh, collaborators on the show shortly obviously um well, I was keen to do those. Maybe you can just give us a quick overview of what readers can expect to learn this time. And, and also, you just talked about get sort of like putting a call out to get, yeah. to get people to sort of almost, I guess, pitch. But how did, how did you choose the topics that, that eventually ended up in the book? So there are some key themes that come through from Future Proof. Um, the community itself has lots of ideas about what they'd like to see and what the issues are affecting them. I mentioned the PRCA project that we did early in the year that uh, threw up quite a few of the things that agencies um, have problems with. And I just had some ideas of what I wanted to see and what I uh, believe we need to have information on, bearing in mind that um, not even just the industry is changing around us, the political environment is. So yeah. you look at Brexit, there's all the uncertainty there. That, for me, um, actually provides quite a big opportunity. So I wanted to take the opportunity to say, look, there is an opportunity. How do we go about you know, grasping the nettle? 
did you have to disappoint anyone? Actually, I did, but not because of the person and not because of the topic. Um, the reason was that they pitched on the spec that I'd put out there, which obviously is to be expected. And what I wanted was um, certain viewpoints, not all from within the PR industry. So for me, the, a very clear objective was to look at the issues facing us and then get people who could comment, but perhaps from a slightly different viewpoint. So to give you an idea, we have um, Tina Fagent, who I think, Tina, you're going to speak to on Absolutely, the show. Yeah. She talks about um, procurement and actually how the two worlds don't quite meet. We don't speak the same language at the moment. So I wanted someone who understood our environment to talk about that. Um, we've got Andrew Reeves, who very much understands um, um, finance. So he talks about contracts and how we actually practically manage those and what the value of those are, um, which actually I think we sometimes kind of bypass. And so there's quite a few people like that who aren't PRs but can give us a really good perspective on best practice. Um, with all the technology discussed in the book, and I've obviously I haven't read all 39 chapters yet, but I've, I've flicked through as many you as I could. I haven't had that much time though. I to have be not fairest. had much time, no. Um, <laughs> but are you still of the opinion that it's still nice to have a touchy-feely printed version on, on your shelf or desk? Absolutely. I'm personally quite traditional. I love a book. I love the smell of a book. I don't have loads of time to read a book. But you know what? I go back to Future Proof all the time. Right. I'm pretty confident I'll be doing the same with the Future Proof edition too. And the demand shows that actually people want that. You know, People like to have the ones that's very quick to read and that you can read while you're mobile and, and commuting or, you know, however you want to you know however you want to consume it but evidently from the sales on blur we can see that people do want yeah. that they want it on their bookshelf not just because they're a contributor because actually they find it of value as a guide so here is your first opportunity to plug where can listeners <laughs> go to order or download their coffee absolutely well if you're looking for any information anyway on yeah. future proof and how you get involved best place is always uh, futureproofingcoms.co.uk and from there that you'll get a link to where you can buy a hard copy uh, and you'll also get a link to if you want to download it for the Kindle you can get it there obviously you can still get a free e-download uh, e of um, of Futureproof One okay. uh, there as well uh, if you do want to join the community as well and get more involved there is a Futureproof um, Facebook group and we have we are uh, proofed on Twitter Brilliant. and it's a really great community and you know what people it doesn't have to be you know someone who wants to contribute it's about anybody who's got ideas or really wants to see the uh, PR profession thrive and have got ideas for where it's headed. Okay, now I've got um, a final question, which actually came via Twitter, which is a bit ironic because she's actually here tonight and, and she's one of your contributors, which is uh, Ella Minty. And she wants to know... Uh, What's next? I mean, and I guess that means, you know, any plans for Future Proof 3? Yeah, do you know what it is? Um, I'm getting that question quite a lot. And I kind of, admittedly in summer, with the speed that this has been turned around, I was like, that's it. I think I'm done. But I do have an idea that I've got the brewing so evidently i'm not about what i'd like to do with future proof three and anyway i do have to do it because Stephen waddington keeps saying if you don't i will and i can't let that happen <laughs> Stephen <laughs> is a uh, is a good friend of the show we've actually had him on a couple of yeah, times but i, I avoided interviewing him again otherwise yeah. he's going to start taking over the place um <laughs> thanks sarah that's uh, that's great um we're back after a quick break with the uh, one of the authors of chapter 19 uh, sarah clark Support for the C-Suite podcast comes from Broadcast Specialist Marketeers. Broadcast Specialist Marketeers. Market hires? Tears. Tears. Half of the world's most valuable brands. User Marketeers. Delivering stories and content on air, online and to mobile that capture attention. Marketeers. Switch on the power of broadcast. Very nice. I use Marketeers. You do? I love it. 
Welcome back to this future-proof special of the C-Suite podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my next guest is Sarah Clark, who is Head of Communications Insights at the Department of Health, and together with Jim McNamara, who is a Professor of Public Communications at the University of Technology in Sydney, she has written Chapter 19 of the book, which is titled A Listening and Insightful Future, Changing PR Practice to Deliver Audience-Led Communications possibly the longest uh, chapter title in the book, Sarah. Um, But tell us about audience-led communications. Well, really, this is all about developing communications um, around how consumers see themselves. Um, So thinking about the consumer needs and how do we meet those and using that in an innovative way. Surely, though, understanding your audience is PR 101, isn't it? I mean, why is this so groundbreaking? It is. I think there are a couple of reasons why it's groundbreaking. Um, first of all, we know through uh, Professor McNamara's work that most organisations aren't doing genuine two-way communication. Um, most PR organisations are often broadcast made. So this is something we're not doing very well and we really need to improve at as an industry. I think, second of all, there are lots of opportunities now for um, the way that we do research and insight that means that we can be far more innovative and get closer to audiences. So the opportunities developed by new technology means that we can develop and garner insight in new ways, which is quite exciting for creative communications. In in your chapter, you talk about six areas that are critical to building audience-led communications. I mean, clearly, obviously, without doing a book reading here, can you give us a quick overview of, of them? The most important thing is about actually, once you've garnered the insight, actually taking action upon it. But once you've got the insight from lots of different sources, making sure you're integrating it. So it's not about looking at one individual source and thinking that's it. It's about actually pooling everything you've got and developing some powerful insight, triangulating your stuff and making it tell a really, really passionate story. I think the other thing we touched upon in the chapter is about actually really drilling down to the audience. So, you know, a number of uh, organisations across PR often talk, and we can be guilty of it within the Department of Health, at a very high level talking about the public at large. And we really need to focus down in on segmented audiences and for individuals what life feels like for them. So get much closer um, to our audience and individual people. Um, It's also about when you're thinking about the issue from the audience perspective, thinking about whether from a listening perspective, whether the issue that you're trying to tackle is the most important one for them. It might not be. And that might mean that you need to do some really important thinking about your approach. Should you actually be communicating about another area rather than this one? How how are you actually implementing it in, in your role at the Department of Health then? So one of the things uh, we were doing last year when uh, there was the Ebola crisis across the world was we were doing some um, quite sort of close work with audience in that we were broadcasting some light and live streaming some focus groups um, and enabling me to ask some direct questions to focus groups of the workforce and also members of the public so that we could quickly, very quickly, understand how things were feeling for people and turning that into some tangible comms actions. Out of the many tools that you, that you recommend in, in your chapter, and that obviously you go through quite a few of them, I mean, is there any in particular that, that's worked well for you? 
Yeah, I think a number of things such as um, online uh, kind of public panels, um, some really good in-depth social media listening work, so you're actually listening to conversations live as they happen. Um, video diaries have been really helpful before, for example. We've used that really well to understand how things are feeling for parents and turning that into some really creative communications. Um, and trying to integrate all of those things together. So once you've used all of those different tools, taking what you've got and pulling it together, that becomes something really strong. Yeah. Are there any companies that, that you've seen, obviously external to what you're doing, have, uh, any, anyone that you've seen that you think is doing it really well? Yeah, I think um, Saatchi and Saatchi are doing some really good work at the moment. They're trying to encourage the marketing industry to think about consumers in terms of the way that consumers see themselves so for example how rather than project or rather than marketing industry projecting onto mums how they think they should be actually understanding more how mums see themselves and what that opportunities that brings around for marketing so for me that's really uh you know shows what audience led in communications can be it's what how the audience see themselves and how we generate communications yeah. off the back of okay. that so so if there was one main message that you were hoping to get across to the to the readers of your chapter what what would that what would that be it would be evidence is the unique selling point that we as communicators have at the board table we it's the thing that we bring in that no one else has and it makes us powerful advocates who can challenge management and earlier on Sarah Hall was saying about how the real challenge now is for us to challenge management and at the board table and that is what we need in order to be able to do yeah. that it's about speaking truth to power there's a bit of passion coming through on your <laughs> that's excellent Definitely. brilliant uh, Sarah Clark thanks for joining the show pleasure thanks for having me Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com. You're listening to the C-Suite podcast here at the launch of Future Proof Edition 2. I'm Russell Goldsmith and my next guest is the author of Chapter 34 of the book, Daryl Sperry. Uh, Daryl is UK Business Development Director at Hotwire and his chapter is titled How the Future Proof PR Can Embrace the Opportunities of SEO. Now, uh, Daryl, your chapter mentions a few times about SEO agencies taking budgets from PR. What are you doing at Hotwire to combat that? Yeah, th thanks for the question. <laughs> um, some time ago, Hotwire spotted this trend um, and so we took the necessary steps we invested in in the right skills in-house so that we could offer SEO as part of integrated comms to our our, our client base um, and really I think one of the reasons of my chapter is that SEO is as much about creative and content capabilities as it is the technical side of things nowadays um, so at Hotwire, we haven't had any SEO agencies eat our lunch, but we're <laughs> definitely aware of that with yeah. some of our industry peers um, and, you know, wider in the industry. And they're faced with a really simple choice. It's either hire or require. Well, it's, it's that's a interesting, like you say that, because picking up on, um, you know, it was back, I think it was back in July, 3Pipe 
announced that they'd acquired the SEO agency uh, Spot Digital. Um, and they said, so I, I, when I looked up on, on their website, I was obviously doing a little bit of research on this, but they, in their news section, um, they said that it was to further boost their natural search and SEO capability. Do, do you see more acquisitions or mergers of this type taking place? Yeah, I, I know Jim and the Three Pipe guys very well. Um, I'm surprised that more of these kind of things haven't happened sooner. I think the challenge over the course of the past five or six years has been that the bigger agencies and networks have had a challenge in valuing SEO agencies because the work has moved away from being technical and software-based to being more creative and content-based. And there's a greater human resource element that comes with that. So I think there's definitely been a valuation challenge for some of the, the bigger agencies. I think the other thing is that the, and the other end of the scale, some PR agencies have tried to offer SEO, but they've done it just by having the SEO person yeah. in the, in here's, the office. Here's our SEO guy. Exactly. Yeah. And, and SEO is too multi-faceted um, a discipline now to say that's the SEO guy because there's technical aspects to it, yeah. there's um, creative aspects to it, there's content and, and writing and copywriting aspects to SEO. So clients very quickly can work out whether you've got a credible yeah. um, SEO offering or not. And, and Hotwire have invested in people, in training, and, and importantly in systems so that we've got a credible um, integrated offer for clients. So, so on that note, how should SEO and PR be working together? I think the number one thing is to stop treating them as separate things and to start calling the halting integrated communications. I think... Um, a lot of what we do at Hotwire is when we do initial research and discovery for clients, we'll be looking at how things affect search engine ranking. So um, things like the backlink profile, how many links uh, yeah. from quality domains uh, client sites have, um, and what keywords they're optimizing for. Because there's an obvious, it might not seem it immediately, but there's an obvious messaging implication to if all of your external messaging is around a particular aspect of your product set that no one is searching for online, you're going to have an SEO problem. And actually, that probably indicates you've got a messaging problem as well. Yeah. It's not really resonating with the market. Re reading through your chapter, you, you come across very clear. I mean, obviously, SEO and PR needs to work together, but you're quite adamant that PR should be leading that relationship. I would say that, wouldn't I? You would. <laughs> I mean, wh 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 why, why is that, though? I, I, I mean, I, I think in a world where 50% of what influences search engine ranking position is links from high-quality third-party websites, PR should be in the box seat. Yeah. Um, I think also PR has always been about long-term, hard-won relationships um, and not potentially spammy gimmicks which Google may crack down on in the future and so I, I hope in my chapter in the second edition of Future Proof I've, I've maybe make, made the case for yeah. PR to be in, in more of the driving seat here. My, my only issue with, with the SEO industry and I'm massively generalizing here but I, I get the feeling it's like you know you get a builder in to quote on some work on your property you know you get so you're so from an SEO point of view you know oh can I have access to your Google Analytics so same as like you get you get the builder to have a look around your home 
And then despite the fact that you had a qualified expert do it previously, they're going to come in and go, and the first thing is, you know, it's along the lines of, I don't know who did this last bit of work for you, but we're going to have to rip all that out and start <laughs> again. You've had the Cowboys in here. Well, <laughs> well, you say that, but as I said, I mean, everyone, you know, yeah. you, you, they come in and pitch themselves as experts, but then the next people you come in then totally rip that apart. Yeah. I mean, I mean, is, I is that a credibility issue in the industry? Because, uh, again, picking up on, on something yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. you talked about, about having governing bodies and things. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a really big believer in this. I think the, what the SEO industry needs is to, at the very least, establish a industry-wide code of conduct and really needs to take the lead from uh, organisations like the PRCA and the CIPR um, or AMEC um, in the communications business to really... Uh, validate the work that they do the one thing i would say about the seo industry is your comparison's a little bit unfair <laughs> on the basis I, I, that I, 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 my caveat was i was ger uh, massively yeah, generalizing I, I think <laughs> if you got 10 economists in a room yeah. and asked them what we should do um post brexit you'd come away with 12 different opinions yeah, i think a, a, any in any consultancy you're gonna you're gonna get that to a certain yeah. extent um in, in terms of uh, and again you know i don't want to obviously give away too much of the chapter otherwise no one's going to need to read it but you, you, <laughs> you talk about the need for PR professionals to as you say learn the lingo you know get an understanding of Google Analytics do, do you see colleagues and peers embracing it or, or purposely avoiding it and also in terms of new recruit, recruits is it something that you, you're going to start to expect to see on their CVs that, as, that are coming through yeah I think that's a really good question I think um, w within Hotwire as a business because we have made we identified this as a trend a while ago and we've invested in this. I think you can see that it's really baked into our client offering and more and more, more, and more people that might not think of themselves as having any expertise in SEO, particularly are starting to connect the dots between SEO, between yeah. content, between creative and between PR um, and how earned and, and paid might affect owned and, and vice versa. Um, I think what in the wider industry, um, I think it will take time before you start seeing more people connecting the dots yeah. when they're kind of submitting their CVs and things like that. So, so in terms of um, sort of like, I, I guess, genning up on, on C, um, SEO, you know, anywhere for our listeners that they can go for more information? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I would say the Hotwire blog, of course. Um, Naturally. But, <laughs> but also, uh, there are some really good people in the PR industry that have been talking about this for a long time. Paul Sutton and Andrew Bruce Smith are two really good guys to look up on Twitter and online. From Google itself, Matt Cutts. Uh, there's a guy called Matt Cutts who used to be at Google, who now works for the US government. He's got a blog, which is a, a mine of information. There's a company called Moz um, and a chap called Rand Fishkin who has an amazing moustache, um, <laughs> who people should look up right. um, and search metrics. Um, and if, if uh, they can put up with my tweets about running and, and about craft beer, they're more than welcome to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daryl Spare. Do, do you know what? We, we put a question out earlier you know, on Twitter asking if anyone had any questions. The only thing I got back was about beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I talk about beer quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, Daryl Sperry, thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much. 
So joining me now for the final interview of the night is Tina Fijan, who is an independent procurement consultant and author of chapter 20 of our featured book, and the chapter is titled Speaking the Language of Procurement. Um, now, Tina, without wanting to give too many spoilers, uh, I love the opening quote that you used in your chapter, which was by the astronaut John Glenn, who said, and I quote, as I hurtled through space, one thought kept crossing my mind, every part of this rocket was supplied by the lowest bidder. Yes, thank you. I'm glad you liked that quote. I thought uh, when Sarah asked me to write the chapter on procurement, I thought it was a good scene setter uh, in terms of the feedback I get from many agencies that I do work with is procurement is always focused on the lowest cost. And to answer that, yes, some are. But you need to understand if that's what they are focused on. And that's where a lot of agencies perhaps don't dig a bit deeper. So what I wanted to do in this chapter was really try and understand and explain the role of procurement you know, and actually ask agencies to understand what's driving procurement. Is it the lowest cost? Is it about value? Is it about ROI? Is it about PR coverage? And actually just set the scene with your procurement people before you start the process. Yeah, I mean, you've almost answered, I was going to ask you my next question, actually, and you've almost answered it there. But surely as soon as procurement is is involved, you know they're going to ask you to drop your prices because they're bonused on it, aren't they? Uh, they're not necessarily bonused on it. And right. that's one really good point about actually asking how procurement are targeted. You have to be wary if there's consultants. There could be someone like me, but I'm never bonused on savings. Some are. So yeah. if there's consultants involved, I'd advise all agencies to ask how they've been incentivized. Procurement have a department objectives of which one element could be savings. Procurement's role is to manage the supply base and to make sure that they are maximising value and reducing risk. So procurement's role is to make sure you get the best suppliers in place to deliver against the written brief that hopefully the client has written in the most cost-effective way. And it depends on the company's targets. I mean, if you've got two companies that have merged and they've got to deliver cost savings as part of that to the city... You know about it. I mean, especially if you work in PR, you're going to know that the merger of two companies has resulted in targeted savings of 500 million euros. Ask them, are you after cost savings? Um, But procurement should be about getting the right suppliers in place with the right contract terms that actually both parties are happy with. But but in terms of, you know, just picking up on what you just said there, in, in terms of like the PR industry, where... Obviously, it, it involves consultancy in which some cases could be free or certainly over-serviced. That's a, I know it's a sort of topic that gets discussed quite mm. a lot in terms of the amount of over-servicing. That is not the same as buying widgets. So how, how do you get procurement to take account of that? Yeah, and I, you know, I feel very unhappy when I see a buyer whose background is buying widgets and they have had no training either invested by the company or by themselves in learning the category. Good procurement people are ones that are very experienced in buying all of marketing categories. Um, and I think good procurement people will look at making sure there's a scope of work, there is the right team in place of the agency to do that, and then from that, the right remuneration process. And then from that, having regular review meetings. Clients and agencies I work with, I say you should have at least six monthly reviews because an agency shouldn't be over-delivering excessively. You might agree a variance of 5-10% on either side, but if you're reviewing it on a quarterly or six-monthly basis, every 12 months, if you've got a fair procurement person and you understand where they're coming from and you've got the facts and figures, then that's fine. The trouble is it falls down where 
agencies perhaps haven't been recording information, haven't been as transparent on some stuff. And of course, that then leads to aggravation in the relationship. So I think what I was trying to do in this chapter was get off on the right foot with procurement, just help agencies understand them a bit better. Where there's good procurement, work with them and yeah. develop the relationship from a commercial point of view. Because sometimes procurement people might find extra budget for you, you never know. But also that procurement person moves jobs, they go for European or global role and they think of that good PR agency, they got procurement, I'll give them a shout. So I think agencies also need to think of procurement as you know someone they need to sell to and market to, but they wouldn't want you to be really not servicing the account at a low cost because that's going to affect the delivery. There are some people that will do that, you know, and I've learned, you know, in the training that I do for agencies, you're always going to get some. But I think if you know that's where they're coming from, it is about if they are wanting, you know, 10% added value year on year, if you know it, you you can then manage it. It's knowing it is half the trouble and asking the right questions. And for those agencies that have never been through the process, could you talk us through how sort of like the, the very quick breakdown of how it, how it all works? I mean, I know, you again, you just touched on some elements there. but Yeah, I mean, you know, basically procurement's role is uh, to make versus buy is the first thing. So do we insource it, do we outsource it? Then to, if there is a need to find an external agency to manage the, we would call it tender, but in marketing terms, pitch process. Yep. And that's to manage the timescales and, you know, who pitches. And then once the agency has been selected to then negotiate, hopefully with two shortlists uh, and find the preferred supplier. And then you then would manage the agency on a regular basis. We call it yeah. category management. And then you'd also have reviews in place, which hopefully should be 360. So it's very much finding an agency putting the right commercial terms in place and then manage them on an ongoing basis, which some procurement people don't do as well as I'd like them to do. And again, I think agencies would be great to engage with procurement on a more regular basis to say, look, this is our scope of work, this is where we are, we're up or down, we want to review that quarterly with you. And procurement can help on issues like payment terms and lack of purchase orders as well, so procurement are more than willing to help on that. Just out of of interest, what's your view on pitch, uh, paid for? pitches because um, I mean there's a lot of effort can go into the, the yeah process. I do and I ha- having worked agency side I never appreciated how much work actually goes into pitches yeah and I think especially in the PR sector perhaps where fees are can be obviously more restricted than perhaps other categories of marketing um, I think if you're going to pay you should pay a nominal fee because it makes a client think about it be it you know for two and a half five thousand pounds for example um, but I'm not a great fan of paying for pitches but I think procurement then needs to manage the client to make sure they're not asking excessively for three rounds of creative ideas yeah, that yeah. they then then take themselves and use. So, but if you're going to pay for one agency, you should pay all agencies and you shouldn't have the right to the intellectual property either. Okay. Um, I did a little bit of research on you. I saw that you uh, established a few marketing procurement teams uh, for the likes of O2, GSK, Orange. But what were your main aims and, and how did you go about achieving them when you when you were going through that? Well, I had to start from scratch, so there was no procurement person working with marketing. So the first thing was really to engage with the stakeholders, and actually, and that's where some procurement people do fall down. And I think good procurement people know their sector, know the market. So first of all, it's always about engaging with the stakeholders, knowing the suppliers, and spending time with the suppliers, the agencies, because actually they can tell you a lot more about the organisation than you can. So very much understanding the stakeholders, understanding the suppliers, understanding the spend, and then working with the stakeholders, the marketing, the PR managers, brand managers, to say, what are the opportunities? Not necessarily just about money, but could it be consolidation? Could it be leverage? Are we going to decouple stuff? 
stuff? Can we buy this on a European basis? Are we dealing with a holding company and there's 10 agencies in that group? So really, you know, looking at, we would call it opportunity analysis. So stakeholder engagement, analysis, and then planning what the opportunities are yeah. uh, and then working through those and delivering those and obviously recruiting a team to deliver that. Okay. Uh, when it comes to the RFP, the RFQ, the ICT, uh, God knows how many acronyms in your in your chapter yeah. in the procurement <laughs> world. Um, but anyway, for when it you know when it comes to that whole process for a startup, what's the chances of them ever getting anything you know, or, or a relatively new agency? What's mm. the chance of them getting through the process? Because they'll norm you know a, a, a corporate is going to be looking in that or the procurement team is going to be looking for like three years of audited results. Mm. Are they not? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's true, and I think it's really hard for startups because. Some RFPs can be 40 pages, and they're an IT an IT RFP. They've just yeah. inserted, IT, you know, PR services for IT. And again, I think sometimes it's being brave and actually saying, "Is it worth us going through this process?" Because actually, if the fee is fifty thousand pounds or a hundred thousand, and we're going to tie up, you know, a weeks of, you know, the business director's time in doing it, is it not worth it? So I think yeah, it's the opportunity. Yeah, consider the yeah. opportunities, and I think agencies are often too quick. It's hard oversupply market. Twenty thousand plus agencies in the UK. And for every agency that says no, there's someone that says yes. Yeah. So I would say consider the opportunity carefully, work out the time invested, but be open. So the three years audited accounts, if it asks for that, just say, this is where we are, and here's a letter from our bank manager. Here's a letter from so-and-so. And a lot of agencies, don't, I think they're scared by the documentation and sometimes aren't that proactive in saying, actually, we haven't got three years, or say they had a dip in year two because of some depreciation costs or moving buildings. Explain why those reasons are. Yeah. Don't let a, a procurement person interpret because it could be wrong. And actually, you could have perfectly valid reason for that dip in, in turnover or not having that year's accounts filed. Just put a little caveat, a little question, make assumptions and put those assumptions down. That's what I tell all agencies that I work with. Excellent. Okay, so final question for you. Uh, do business development heads or who, whoever in, in the agency that's responsible for this, do, do they need to be making friends with the uh, procurement teams now? Yes, I'm glad you asked me that because uh, regardless of whatever sector of marketing, it still seems an area that, you know, that marketing people in agencies are not engaging with procurement people as marketing to sell them and yeah. sell them and they definitely should do we can be your friends not all foes <laughs> excellent uh tina that's great thanks for joining the show thank you so that's it for today's show just a reminder that future proof edition 2 is available in hard copy via futureproofingcoms.co.uk and you can also find it on amazon just search for uh, future proof and you should find it in the list there you can also join the conversation on twitter uh, if you follow at we are proofed and um, also you can join the community on facebook as well now don't forget you can listen to all previous shows of this uh, podcast series by subscribing to us on soundcloud or itunes just search for the c-suite podcast and please 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 if you uh, can on itunes in particular do uh, give us a, a a positive rating and a review um, and if you want to get in touch with me about the show just drop me a line on twitter using at ross goldsmith or um, via the contact form on the website csuitepodcast.com thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>